Reading this morning is from Mark chapter 7, starting in verse 31, and we'll read into chapter 8 a little bit too. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephapha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. In those days, when again a great crowd had gathered, and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. He directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we are all scattered around across a couple of services, wearing masks. Some of us are at home, watching online, but uh, we're here because God has spoken to us through His Word, and because in His Word we find the good news of Jesus. So let's pray that we would hear it this morning. Father, we ask that You'd be with us, that we would know the height and depth and breadth of the riches of Christ. We ask this by Your Spirit and in His name. Amen. Well, Adrian and I recently watched our way through the series Cheers, which, you know, is one of those long-running sitcoms, uh, 11 seasons through pretty much most of the 80s and into the early 90s, and there's some really amazing moments, and there's some pretty, uh, pretty dated stuff, too. And it's also one of these shows that had, you know, almost 30 episodes some of the seasons, so it's just, you know, some of our total misses. Anyway, um, you get to the finale of the show the series finale. And, you know, they do, the, they do this thing where they kind of go around. They make sure you sort of touch on what's going on in each character's life. They even bring back uh, Diane, who had been like, you know, a bit, one of the main uh, characters in the early seasons. And they touch on all these different themes from the show. They kind of, you know, t- all these different touch points. And uh, in the last shot of the whole show, is Sam Malone, who's the bar owner, going around the bar 
kind of cleaning up. And there's no soundtrack. It's just quiet. And you just get a chance basically to kind of scan the bar one last time that had been, you know, the setting for almost all the action of the show, the whole 11 seasons. Uh, now, despite its flaws, and there are many, uh, it was a way of sort of touching, you know, wrapping up the show by touching on all these different themes and all these characters that you've known. <clears throat> well, Mark is kind of doing that. You see, we haven't talked a lot about the bigger overall structure of Mark, but this is getting to the end of the first act of Mark. The second act of Mark we'll, we'll be getting to later on, but uh, this week and next week, you'll find that there are a series of events that are kind of similar to stories we've already heard. It is the end of the beginning. <laughs> it's the end of this first act, where in many ways we're kind of revisiting themes that we've touched on already. Uh, there's the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter 9, which we'll get to in a few weeks, and we'll spend a few weeks on, are kind of the hinge of the book. But this week and next week, we'll be talking about these themes that have kind of formed the backbone of Jesus' ministry over these three years. And it's kind of interesting, because that is Jesus' ministry, has been this first act. The second act is really just covers about two or three weeks. Jesus heading to Jerusalem, and of course, the faith that he meets there. But what we will see this week is what Jesus means to me, or what Jesus means to you, personally. Next week, we'll think more about what Jesus means to us together, though, of course, those are interrelated realities. But as we think about what Jesus means to me, what Jesus means to us personally, he means health. He means wholeness, and he means hope. Health, wholeness, hope. Obviously, with health, we're thinking about this healing in chapter 7. And it's worth reminding ourselves of the biblical background of all this. Uh, whenever health comes into view, we're, we're set into a somewhat different frame of mind than our modern way of understanding health. And... For most of us, we think of suffering, we think of illness, even death as sort of a natural thing, right? That's just the way of the world. But what the Bible tells us from the very beginning, and we're going to get into a series on Genesis uh, when we get to the, after that turning point in Mark. We're going to take a break for a little bit and turn to Genesis. And we'll see this fleshed out in much more detail. But the, in summary, the biblical idea is not that this is the way things are, this, it's that this is the way Things were not supposed to be. That with sin, we ushered in suffering and ultimately death. And so, as we think about a world full of sickness, the Bible is telling us this isn't how it was supposed to be. That that is the, that is the, the nasty fruit of sin. That isn't to say, and let's be care very careful about this, that is the general result. We're warned away from making one-to-one -one correspondence between somebody who's sick and, you know, one in what must be going on in their heart or in their life as if we could draw an easy correlation. But it is true that it is the general result of it. And so in all of these healings, of course, what Jesus is saying is, I'm coming to undo the results of sin. And this one is, is interesting. It does have some unique features to it. For one thing, Jesus takes the man aside 
in a way that we don't necessarily hear about him doing in other ways. And, uh, and you can imagine the commentators trying to make sense out of Jesus touching the man's ears and his tongue, which seems kind of gross, right? But uh, it's, it's, it's not entirely clear what he's doing. But it does seem like he's trying to connect with this guy individually, right? And of course, he can't hear. So he probably has no idea what's going on, what people are talking about. Um, so this whole conversation that must be going on around it to, you know, encouraging Jesus to heal him, he may not know. So Jesus is communicating to him what he's about to do. Because the healing comes, as it always does, simply with Jesus' word. Jesus commands it, and it's so. But all these healings, this one included, are signs of what Jesus is going to do in the long run. That Jesus is undoing the power of sin. The Gospel of John calls all of Jesus' healing miracles signs. They are signs of the kingdom that is to come. In other words, the deepest problem isn't merely the medical issue here. It's not disregarding it, but it's not, it's not the deepest problem. The deepest problem isn't, isn't what ails our bodies or what even, even our psychological issues, right? It is our hearts. Now, however significant those other things are, and they are significant, the deepest problem is our hearts. I mean, one goofy illustration of this is from The Office. You might remember Michael Scott, the buffoonish manager of the Dunder Mifflin branch. And in the episode called The Injury, he steps on a George Foreman grill because apparently what Michael would do before going to bed was set a George Foreman grill on the ground next to his bed and lay out strips of bacon that apparently were staying there all night. And he would wake up and plug it in because he would like to smell the bacon and then be able to eat it, of course, first thing in the morning. But one morning he somehow steps on it and it clamps down on his foot and he burns his foot. And, you know, he comes in and he is, uh, he's complaining about how much his foot hurts. But, of course, what that really becomes is a complaint about how he's not getting enough attention. Right? The Michael's real problem is not so much his burnt foot as his own insecurities. Now, I mean, that's obviously a, kind of a silly illustration. But in some sense, it is just like us, right? Our physical ailments, however significant they are, are symbolic of the deeper spiritual problem. That our physical ailments will not merely be solved by medical advancement, but have to be fixed by undoing sin itself. And don't get me wrong, those things are really important. The Bible is concerned with caring for people's physical needs, their mental, emotional needs. It is concerned with all that. Even the the history of Christianity, despite its many flaws, and they are many, is also marked by care for those who are in need. Those things matter. But what you see Jesus doing, though, is that he doesn't go around. He doesn't eradicate sickness. It's still there. I mean, undoubtedly, there must have been some people around who didn't get healed. Because what Jesus is doing is playing the long game. He's playing the end game with sickness, because he knows that the core problem is our sin. That's why Jesus, as the resurrected one, wants us to be resurrected, but it means going through the cross. It means dealing with sin as it is. 
And I think it's always important as we're thinking about what healing means in the Bible, and it doesn't just mean that, we're, that we have the possibility of being healed physically, as it means Jesus is going to deal with this deeper spiritual reality. I'm reminded of what Jesus asks another man that he comes across that needs healing. This is in John 5. And he says to the man, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Not only do you want to be healed medically, right? Not only do you want your body to be right. But of course, what Jesus is asking is, do you want to deal with the underlying problem? Do you want to deal with your heart? Do you want to deal with what's sick with your heart? Do you want to deal with the sin and evil that lurks in it? And of course, if you're not a Christian, that is part of the deal, right? That's part of what is being asked. It is, I think, on the one hand, what's so attractive, but often also what's off-putting, because it means you've got to give up on betting on yourself, giving up on your own self-confidence, and recognizing there's something profoundly wrong with me. But listen, this isn't just about what you need to come to terms with if you're not a Christian. It's also about continuing on that course as a Christian. Because some of us, look, we grew up in the church. We know all the right answers. But that conviction that I need to be healed has never really come home to roost. We know that's true, but we've never really taken that seriously. You know, some of us have known that need maybe at one time in our lives, but as we've gone further along, we've marked out corners of our heart that we're not going to deal with. We're not going to let those get cleaned up. I don't want to deal with that thing. But Jesus wants to clean the whole thing up. Jesus wants to heal you, which means getting into every last corner of our heart. Do you want to be healed? It's not so simple a question as we might think. But Jesus promises healing and guarantees it as we'll see. It's not just healing, it's also wholeness. Now here we get into another odd story as we get into chapter 8, where Jesus feeds 4,000. Now this is obviously similar, it echoes the feeding of the 5,000 that we saw back in chapter 6. Maybe you remember that, it's one of Jesus' most kind of famous, I think, miracles, uh, where he multiplies the bread, right? He has a few loaves and a it feeds this enormous crowd. Uh, some of the older scholars, you know, of, of the Bible sometimes criticize this, saying this is, you know, look, it's clear that these Gospels are just kind of a patchwork of different stories. They weren't necessarily all that consistent, because here you can see two different versions of the same story. Uh, thankfully, most scholars have come around to realize that that probably would have been just as obvious to any reader 2,000 years ago as it is to us that there are similarities. And so the more important question isn't, are there similarities, it's, but what is unique and why would two similar stories be here together? And what we see in chapter 6, and if you remember that sermon, and I don't have time to re-preach the sermon here, uh, but if you remember from that, yes, we're all thankful for that. Uh, if you remember that, 
That was the context of Galilee, a predominantly Jewish area. In other words, most of the crowd there, maybe the entire crowd, was Jewish. And all the symbolism was connected to the Exodus and Jesus sort of regathering Israel, reforming Israel. Here, he's in the Decapolis, which is on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee, if you're looking at, well, I guess the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And what Jesus is doing is he probably has a crowd here that is mixed, Jew and Gentile. And they're gathered together. And so the symbolism shifts. And the number seven comes up a couple of times. There's seven loaves, and they leave with seven baskets full. And we've got to be careful about you know, reading too much into symbolism of numbers in the Bible, and there have been all kinds of crazy things that people have done with that. But the number of seven is really important. And when it pops up around, especially what somebody like Jesus is doing, it should catch our eye. You know the number seven, seven days of creation, seven years building the temple. It comes up a bunch of times in the book of Revelation where it is clearly symbolic. It just comes up over and over and over again. It is, this, it is the number associated with doing something perfectly, with completing something, with making something whole. Jesus, in other words, is completing here what Israel had been called to. Israel, way back in Genesis 12, was called, when God called Abraham, it was called to be a blessing to the nations. And here Jesus is bringing Jew and Gentile together. He is doing exactly what we had heard he did. He did all things well. He is completing the work of Israel. He is making it whole. That will have some social ramifications, but we'll touch on more next week. But it means that Jesus is bringing people together here to make them whole. He's providing for their physical needs. And the wholeness that the Bible talks about, that that health will, of course, lead to, that wholeness can be misunderstood. You know, on on the one hand, the wholeness of of a Christian life can be over-spiritualized. That might sound a little bit like a weird way to put it. But there is a way of understanding what God is doing in our lives as simply, well, that's something we will receive, you know, we'll receive when we've shed this body, when we shed this world behind, and, and all these other different things, and what it forgets. It may emphasize the interior life, but what it forgets is that what we're promised is a whole life, a resurrected life, body and soul, and all these relationships that come with it. But it's also possible to have a kind of under-spiritualized understanding of our wholeness, where we emphasize the exterior, we emphasize behavior, we emphasize our relationships and responsibilities. We might be more, you know, we might be emphasized justice here. We might be emphasizing our engagement with the world around us, our vocation, and all those other things, and miss the interior. Miss the radical transformation that God needs to bring. And you see, it's not as if those are entirely wrong, but that they're missing the wholeness of it all, right? God wants in, you inside and out to change. God wants you to change body and soul. He wants you to deal with your relationship with Him. He wants you to deal with your 
understanding of yourself. He wants you to deal with your relationships and the responsibilities you have. He wants all of it. And what the, I mean, what does this look like, right? Because it's not, I think wholeness sounds great, right? But it's not easy. In fact, it might make your life a little more challenging, at least for the time being. It looks like this. Wholeness looks like this. It looks first like personal integrity. You're not one person with some people and another with others. You're learning the character of Christ, and that is coming to bear in your life. And that, look, that works out now. Because, in fact, we learn the perfections of Christ's character better in this fallen world. That is to say, learning the sacrificial character of Jesus becomes clearer in this life. That's why God is working it out now in your life. So it looks like personal integrity in that sense. It also looks like relational growth. Partly because... That character cannot be shown except in your relationships. I mean, think about the fruit of the Spirit, right? What does it mean to love? How do you know if you're growing the loving character of Christ unless you actually love somebody? You love those that are put in your life. You love your family. You love your friends, right? You love your neighbor as yourself. You even love your enemies. That has to be worked out that way. How do you know if you're growing in patience if you don't learn to be patient with others? How do, you learn, how do you learn gentleness if you're not gentle with others? Right? In other words, that relational growth is always part of it as well, right? It can't just be this interior thing. It works its way out in those that we know and we love and we care for. It also involves vocational clarity. Clarity about your calling in life. Now, that means, you know, certainly means your career, what we tend to typically associate with the word vocation. But it means callings, right? Your, voca- your callings in life, your vocations. So it certainly involves your career, and that doesn't mean you necessarily Christianize your job, as if you just slap a Christian slogan on it and it's fine. But it, does, it means bringing to bear the love of Christ, the character that you're growing into there. It means bearing witness to Jesus by that change that's happening in you and how that works out in your different responsibilities. So that means certainly within your career. It means within your families. It means within our church life. It means even as citizens, right, bringing vocational clarity so that the wholeness that Jesus is bringing involves your change. It involves your, you know, internally. It involves your relationships and it even involves your wider responsibilities. So, Jesus is bringing that healing, and that will lead to wholeness, but it rests in our hope in him. And this is so, so important. Because healing and the path to wholeness can be very difficult. But notice what people say about Jesus. This is in, at the end of chapter 7, verses 36 and 37. Jesus tells them, and we've seen him do this several times, he tells the crowd, don't tell anybody about what just happened. And the crowd blows them off, and they keep talking about it. I, I, actually, I love this line, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. 
We see this happen over and over again. Jesus is telling them, look, I'm trying to maintain a low profile, but people can't keep help but talk about what Jesus does. The demons try to, and Jesus refuses to let them, for good reason. They're terrible witnesses. But, when, but he doesn't refuse to let people. He tells them not to, but he lets them do it. So word is getting out. It is becoming an open secret, all of the amazing things that Jesus is doing. And then this line, this one sentence in one verse, which is worth dwelling on for a really long time. In verse 37, they say that he has done all things well. Jesus has done all things well. It is such a simple phrase, and yet we would never say that about anybody. We don't say that about people. If you said that about somebody, we'd think they're delusional. I mean, all things, come on. I mean, that's a little, that's a little much. You, you might, somebody who's falling in love might say something like that, but all of us who have been in love for very long know, eh, the facade cracks a little bit over time, right? They don't do all things well. You might, you might, you're still going to love things about them, right? But they don't do all things well. We don't say this about them. We might say it about one particular event, that they did that thing really well. You might say that about a, a person, maybe a, maybe a team, right? We talk about this with, with sports some, right? Where you're like, they were flawless, right? You might say that about a Clemson championship over Alabama, right? That that game was flawless. But you, you don't say that about the, the Clemson team altogether all the time. You don't say that about... Anybody all together all the time. We might say that about a particular performance by a musician, right? But not all the time. We especially don't talk about it with people who traffic in soft power, like Jesus. And the one example I can think of where something like that happened was, uh, was when Adrian and I saw the documentary won't you be my neighbor? Now, this, is, this was, came out two years ago about Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. Now, th- there was like a movie last year that Tom Hanks was in. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the documentary. Uh, and, of course, it's all these interviews, all this, you know, old footage of, of Fred Rogers. And we were, wa- we were watching this amazing movie and uh, documentary and at this kind of small theater. And the lights come up at the end. And there's not a dry eye. I mean, some people are weeping. Everybody's at least a little choked up by this. And not because it was a particularly sad moment. We were weeping because of the goodness of the guy, right? It was like, it was this guy actually cared for children, right? He, he didn't leverage it into more fame. He didn't even though he became famous in his own weird way, he didn't use that opportunity to get wealthy. He didn't use it for anything. He actually just cared about children. And he cared not only about their kind of development and their education, but their social and emotional health. It, it struck this nerve, too, where, I thought, where you thought, that's the kind of social and emotional health I wish most adults had right now. You know that? could actually do that. It just struck this nerve, right? And you thought, oh my goodness, like, it's so beautiful, right? Well, that's just a little glimpse. That's just a little glimpse of what we're saying of Jesus. He has done all things well. And think about this man that he healed, right? He, 
He's healed a bunch of people. You know, I, I, and Jesus is also on his mission, right? Like, as we're saying, like, we're about to see in a couple of weeks there's a real turning point coming here in Mark. Jesus has his eye on, like, his eternal plan, the thing that he's been a planning, he's been planning for, you know, before creation. He's about to do this great act. He's been healing people. I mean, if this were me, I'd just be throwing around healings left and right, you know, like, I, uh, I would be a terrible Messiah, is what I'm saying. Jesus takes time, even with this guy, to pull him aside, to find some way to communicate to him what he's about to do. He has time even for that. But it's not enough merely that Jesus cares. It is where Jesus' love is leading him. It's leading him to the cross. Jesus' compassion and gentleness, his great love and his justice are leading him there. The old theologians, would, when they talked about Jesus' perfections and they talked about his obedience, and Martin Luther especially taught, used these categories a lot, would talk about Jesus' active obedience and his passive obedience. His active obedience that he lived the life that we did not and could not live. That out of his love, according to the law, he was perfect. And more than that, he wasn't just he, wasn't just, he didn't just check all the boxes, right? He was kind and loving in the midst of it, not self-righteous like we often think about those who are keeping the law. So he's perfect when we weren't, but he also is passive in his obedience because he takes what we deserve. And by his love, according to the law, all that we deserved, he took on himself. That is Jesus' perfection. That he goes where our sin-sick hearts lead. Into death itself. He's accomplished what we could not. That he broke the power of sin and death from the inside out. And then was raised up. Jesus' life for you. That's the gospel. He's accomplished what we could not. And listen, as we're talking, as we talked about health and wholeness, those are hard things to pursue. I mean, again, as we think about what it means to be healed, do we really want to be healed? Do you really want God getting into all the corners of your heart? That's a scary prospect. Do you really want that kind of wholeness? Because that it requires a lot. It requires you to think about so many things going on in your life. And the reason we can have courage to follow him into health and wholeness is because of the hope that we have in what Jesus has accomplished. You can follow him. Look, since Jesus died on the cross, you can follow him. Right, since he, has, he knows the horrors of sin, he knows the trials of suffering, he knows the crushing blow of death. You can follow him. Since he has destroyed their claim on you by his resurrection, since he is now reigning as king in heaven, since he has now sent the spirit, you can hope in him. Because that hope will not be disappointed. And listen, since all of those things are true, we have every reason to hope in him. That hope is guaranteed. 
Look, is Jesus going to be surprised at what's in your heart? He's already borne the, the weight of that guilt. Is Jesus going to be ashamed of you? He's already borne the shame of the cross. Is Jesus daunted by you and your mess? He knew about that before he even came. Is Jesus going to let you go when he stayed there on the cross? No. We have every reason to hope in him. He will not disappoint. And he will lead us, however daunting, into health and wholeness. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we need you to be at work to bring that kind of health and wholeness into our lives. We pray that you would teach us to hope in Jesus for it, with confidence that Jesus does not disappoint, with every confidence that he will not change his mind because he has endured everything on the cross for us, has been raised for our, our redemption. Remind us of that hope. Keep us steady in it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.